Hello, and welcome back to Weekly Political Pep Talks, where we discuss major political headlines and issues within the United States. Back with Episode 7, I'm Vishal. And I'm Leo. Before we reveal last week's quote of the week, we'd like to thank all of our listeners. From the United States to the UK to even now the Bahamas, you all have been so supportive, and we really appreciate it. Today, we'll reveal last episode's quote of the week, then once again move on to our headlines, then get into our main topic for the episode, which will be schools and COVID-19. Finally, like always, we'll end with a quote of the week. All right, well, it looks like it's once again time to reveal last episode's quote of the week. Vishal, would you repeat the quote for our listeners? I would love to. Last week's quote was, quote, a house divided against itself cannot stand, unquote. Leo, would you like to reveal who said it? I sure will. The person who said that quote is, drumroll please, famed President Abraham Lincoln. Shout out to Joe Field for answering correctly. Go follow him on Instagram at jcool9yt. Great job, Joa, and thank you so much for getting involved with the podcast. Now, without further ado, let's get into some headlines. The first headline I would like to introduce is from the New York Times, and it is titled, We Will Not Forgive, Biden says, vowing retaliation in Kabul attack. On Thursday, August 26th, President Biden addressed the United States after a suicide bombing that happened in the Kabul airport. Now, for some background information. Kabul is the capital of Afghanistan, and the country recently fell to the Taliban immediately after the United States had rescinded its troops. Thus, the suicide bombing and the fall of Afghanistan are very similar situations that fall hand in hand. So far, we know that the bombing killed 13 U.S. troops and dozens of Afghan citizens. So Vishal, who were behind these attacks? So we know the terrorist organization called ISIS-K, the Afghan affiliate of the Islamic State, claimed responsibility for the attacks. Moreover, President Biden spoke after the U.S. sustained one of its highest death tolls during its 20-year campaign in Afghanistan. He said, to those who carried out this attack, as well as anyone who wishes America harm, know this, we will not forgive. We will hunt you down and make you pay. Additionally, President Biden vowed the United States would respond with force. To quote him, a moment of our choosing, which basically means the United States will respond with an attack at any moment in time. When the time comes is a question that we do not know. Now, President Biden claims that these deaths are an example of why he wanted to end this 20-year war. He doesn't want to sacrifice any more troops to a war that he believes is not in the best interest of the United States. So, Vishal, did the Taliban have anything to do with these attacks? Now, one thing I want to clarify is that this terrorist organization that claimed responsibility is in no way affiliated with the Taliban. As a matter of fact, United States General Kenneth F. McKenzie Jr. believes the Taliban were not involved in this bombing. Now, let's get into our opinions of this situation. Leo, what do you think about this situation overall, and how exactly do you think our country should respond? I'll go first this time. Okay. Well, I for one believe that what is happening in Afghanistan is devastating, and my heart goes out to all of those individuals that lost someone or were affected by what's happening in Afghanistan. Right now, I believe that this foreign issue should be our government's priority. First off, and I'm going to go back to what I said in our very first episode, which, by the way, I predicted this situation would happen. We need to keep our troops in Afghanistan. 
The Taliban and the ISIS-K terrorist organization can easily be eradicated if the United States made it a priority. And I think the lives lost should be a wake-up call to President Biden. So if I were in Biden's shoes, here is what I would do. I would send back all of our troops to Afghanistan. With our military, we should be able to drive the Taliban out of power and avoid horrible terrorist attacks from occurring in the future and make sure that Afghanistan is truly liberated. This should be our response to those horrible attacks this week. And even though these attacks aren't related to the Taliban, I believe the United States should try to fight both of these terrorist groups. By doing this, I believe all of the people who lost someone in Afghanistan will know their loved one's sacrifice truly meant something. Do you want to go ahead? Sure. So now I'll share my opinions. So as you said, Vishal, I do believe that the deaths that occurred during the bombing at the Kabul airport are horrible and tragic. In fact, I think that these deaths are an excellent example of why Biden's decision to pull troops out of Afghanistan was the right one. The original reason that the U.S. went into Afghanistan was to track down the leaders of al-Qaeda and diminish their power. We accomplished this within a few years of our presence. So why not leave then? Because the United States decided to fight the Taliban, a group that committed horrific acts and was in charge of the government at the time. After the United States established a new U.S.-friendly Afghan government, they still stayed to fight Taliban rebels that continued to fight against them. All in all, there was never going to be an end to the war in Afghanistan because the Taliban would always exist and there was and still is no concrete way to attack the Taliban without causing harm to Afghan civilians. This is why, in my opinion, the best course of action is to commit to pulling troops out and instead of staying in Afghanistan under the guise of protecting Afghan civilians, make it so that Afghan civilians can immigrate to the United States quickly and the U.S. should take in as many refugees as possible and give them sufficient means to live a good life in the U.S. All in all, this is what will truly make all fallen soldiers and civilians sacrifice not in vain. Stopping more soldiers from dying in Afghanistan and letting Afghan refugees immigrate to the U.S. and live a safe life. All right. I think those are some very interesting points we both brought up. You want to move on to your headline, Leah? Sure. The next headline that I would like to introduce comes from NPR, and the headline reads, Sirhan Sirhan has served 53 years for killing Robert F. Kennedy. Soon he may be free. As I'm sure many of our listeners know, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated on June 6, 1968. He was shot by a man named Sirhan Sirhan. Before his death, RFK was a lawyer and a politician, and he even served as the U.S. Attorney General from 1961 to 1964, most of which was under the presidency of his more famous brother, President John F. Kennedy. Now, Leo, what else did RFK do in his career? RFK was also an activist for human rights, and he helped start the civil rights movement that continued into the late 1960s and 70s. Anyways, the man who killed RFK, Sirhan Sirhan, was given the death sentence in 1969, but was resentenced to life in prison after the California Supreme Court ruled the death penalty as unconstitutional in 1972. But there are indeed theories from survivors of the shooting that it was not Sirhan who shot RFK. On the night of his murder, RFK had just won the California Democratic primary, and he was looking to get the DNC nomination and run for president. After he gave his speech of acceptance, however, Sirhan entered the room and supposedly shot him along with five other people. RFK's own son, however, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., says that he doesn't believe that Sirhan killed his father. Paul Schrade, a labor leader who was also shot that night, says that there was another gunman, and it was the other gunman who shot RFK, not Sirhan. 
Currently, Sirhan is 77 years old, and after 16 times of requesting parole, he was finally granted parole by two commissioners on the California Board of Parole. Despite these theories about there being a second gunman, and the fact that, according to eyewitnesses, it may not have been Sirhan who committed the murder, Sirhan's parole is said to be separate from any theories and solely based on his good behavior while in prison. All in all, and despite whether or not Sirhan was indeed the shooter, this event serves as a good time to look back at RFK's lasting legacy and the impact that he had had on the world. So Leo, what kind of achievements did RFK make in his career? Well, as Attorney General, he supported voting rights for African Americans, and he fought for their ability to receive an equal education, as well as use public accommodations. As a U.S. Senator, he fought for human rights abroad as well, in Eastern Europe, Latin America, and South Africa. He also took legislative action to encourage private industry to locate in poverty-stricken areas, and he helped lift numerous people out of poverty. So now, let's get into our opinions on this topic. Is it okay if I go first? Sure. So, to be honest, I am not that knowledgeable about the situation regarding RFK's murder, but based on the fact that both an eyewitness, Paul Schrade, and RFK Jr. do not think that Sirhan was the killer, I too do not believe that Sirhan shot RFK. In this way, I think that putting Sirhan on parole is a good way to be able to formulate a case against the second unidentified gunman who it seems killed RFK. Regarding RFK's legacy, I think that the impact that he made was very significant and important. Without his support for voting rights for Black Americans and his defense of the infamous 1954 Brown v. Board of Ed decision, our country would be a very different place today, and not a better one. I think that were RFK to have become president, he would have passed more meaningful legislation that materially helped a lot of people in this country. All right, so I'll share my opinion. I agree with you, Leo. Again, I am not that well informed about RFK's murder, but if two eyewitnesses believe that Sirhan wasn't the killer, then I'll believe those two eyewitnesses are telling the truth. However, just to confirm this, I believe putting the man on parole for a while until they find out who the unidentified gunman that actually shot RFK is a good idea. Now, in regards to RFK as a whole, I think he was a monumental figure in our country. As you said, Leo, his work on voting rights for Black Americans and his contribution to the 1954 Brown v. Board of Ed decisions are incredible. As a matter of fact, I believe he had a shot at the presidency despite running against incumbent Lyndon B. Johnson, also a Democrat. Despite all of his contributions, I think that RFK's legacy is diminishing. And schools should make an effort in brushing up on his legacy. RFK was an important historical figure, and if he had the chance to complete his campaign for the presidency, I'm sure that he could have edged the incumbent Lyndon B. Johnson. All right, those are some very good opinions, Vishal. Now let's move on to our main topic for the episode, which will be school and COVID-19. As always, let's start with some background. The issue on how schools should deal with the spread of COVID-19 began back in March of 2020, when the first pandemic lockdown started. Almost all schools in the United States stayed virtual through the rest of the 2019-2020 school year. Classes were conducted online and through apps like Google Meet and Zoom, and teachers used online platforms to assign work. When it came time for the start of the 2020-2021 to school year, many school systems adopted a hybrid schedule. This hybrid schedule would generally involve half of students going to school one day and then the other half of students the next day. This is a schedule that me and Leo had for the start of our school year in late 2020. During this hybrid schedule, whenever students were in school, wearing masks was required, as vaccines had not become available yet. 
However, wearing masks in school was not always enforced, resulting in schools oftentimes becoming a hotspot for spreading COVID-19. This changed in spring of 2021. Vaccines became available to people 16 and over, and later in the spring, it became available to people 12 and up. This was a huge breakthrough in helping keep students and staff safe at school. However, students and teachers still wore masks in order to protect unvaccinated people at the school and to ensure the virus wasn't spread to people outside of the school. Now that we have all the background, let's talk about some policies that schools are instating for the 2021 to 2022 school year. For this school year, many schools are once again requiring all students to wear masks, regardless of if some of them are vaccinated or fully vaccinated. Despite the skepticism of many people, a new study has shown that when an unvaccinated child masks up and socially distance from one another, a single child would likely pass on the infection to fewer than one other student on average over the course of 30 days. Along with a mask mandate, the majority of schools are instituting new policies during lunch where students are more prone to contract the virus because they have no mask or no protection when they are eating. In my school, students are seated on individual desks and separated with a plastic divider. And at my school, we are individually seated at desks that are three to six feet apart. On top of these policies, we also have the reinstatement of other policies such as unvaccinated individuals must quarantine for 10 days if they are contact traced to an individual that contracts COVID-19. And if any student fails to comply with any of the school's requirements, they will immediately be sent home and set up to learn online. So to sum this up, although we have gotten vaccines rolling out across the country, many schools will still be following strict COVID protocols similar to last year. So now, let's discuss the situation of school and COVID going into the fall of 2021. While many middle schoolers and high schoolers are now vaccinated, lots of students and teachers are still not. This is either because they are too young to get vaccinated, mostly students, or because they have chosen not to for personal reasons. In this way, there have been a lot of arguments over how the virus should be dealt with this fall. Some believe that continuing to mask students and teachers is unnecessary and that we can rely on herd immunity to protect unvaccinated people in our schools. Others, however, believe that we should still have students and teachers wear masks, regardless of their vaccination status, because even vaccinated people can spread the virus, especially considering the new Delta variants. And this brings us to an important discussion going on into this school year, how to deal with the Delta variant. If you've listened to some of our previous episodes, you'll know that we've talked about how the Delta variant is so much more contagious than regular COVID, and that it can harm and even kill vaccinated people as well as unvaccinated people. To deal with the variant, it has been suggested that we take stricter precautions, like having students and teachers wear masks. An interesting case that we'd like to bring up is the Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Earlier this summer, DeSantis made an executive order that barred schools from requiring masks. His reasoning for this was that school mask mandates defied a Florida law that said parents should be able to make educational and healthcare decisions for their children. On Friday, August 27th, the opposite happened. A Florida judge ruled that DeSantis' ban on school mask mandates was invalid, allowing masks to be required in schools. The judge who made this decision, Judge John Cooper, said that DeSantis overstepped his authority with this decision and that overall, school mask mandates were there to keep people safe. This is an interesting event because this is not the first time DeSantis has fought in some shape or form against mask mandates. 
Along with Texas Governor Greg Abbott, DeSantis has been in staunch opposition to mask mandates since 2020. It's up to each person's opinion whether or not this contributed to Florida having the fourth most COVID deaths out of all U.S. states. Speaking of opinions, let's move on to our opinion section for this main topic. Leo, why don't you go first? I will be glad to. So I think that taking precautions in schools when it comes to COVID-19 is both crucial and necessary. Since vaccines started being administered to students as young as 12 earlier this year, I think that schools have become safer than ever. It's even speculated that vaccines will become available to kids younger than 12 soon, and I think that's great, especially for middle and elementary schools. However, we also have to look at the Delta variant and what that means. I think that we have to take the Delta variant seriously, and that students and teachers should still wear masks in schools in order to keep unvaccinated students and teachers safe, as well as to make sure the virus isn't caught in school and passed outside of school. However, I do think that Taking into account guidance given by the CDC, it should be okay for vaccinated students and teachers to not have to wear a mask while outside. In the meanwhile of masks still being required in schools, we should continue with efforts to encourage all eligible people to get vaccinated, and we should work on vaccinating younger students as soon as possible. With this work, I think it's realistic to say that we might not have to wear masks in schools by spring of 2022. That is, if the work is put in and politicians and school administrators alike prioritize the safety of students, we should be able to achieve that goal. Finally, something that I want to mention before the episode ends is the effect that the pandemic has had on both students and teachers' mental health. The pandemic and the need to wear masks makes it harder for students to socialize and puts a lot of stress on teachers to teach effectively through technology. Overall, committing to the goal of getting people vaccinated is what will eventually allow masks to be taken off and for students and teachers to be able to improve their mental and even their physical well-being. All right, that was very well said, Leo, and I'll share my opinion now. All right. To start off, I think the precautions that schools take should be up to the schools. One school that has a smaller population of students may not need to have as strict precautions as a school that has over 3,000 kids in it. So regarding the debate on the protocols some schools should follow, I believe that it should be up to each school's administration to make sure its students are safe. Now I'm going to transition my thoughts about masks in schools as a whole. As I have said many times in previous episodes, masks are only a temporary solution. I think that schools should go the extra mile and require their students to be vaccinated. And although this may make people uncomfortable, it's not foreign. Believe it or not, almost all schools require students to show proof of vaccination for certain diseases in order to attend that school. On top of this, many universities have gone along with this and required their students to get vaccinated in order for them to be on campus. Some of these universities include big names like Harvard, Georgetown, and the University of Michigan. And these are just some of the many universities in America that have gone the extra mile. And in return, students are allowed to roam freely with no masks outside and even inside the campus. So I believe we should have masks for schools that carry children under the age of 12 because the vaccine isn't available for them yet. But I think that high schools and even middle schools should start requiring their students to get vaccinated so they could have looser protocols and go enjoy their school experience. Very well said, Vishal. All right, Vishal, it looks like now it's time to move on to the final segment of this episode. Yes, let's get to the quote of the week. I hope all our listeners enjoyed last episode's quote and had fun guessing it was America's 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. I hope our listeners are ready for this week's quote, and here it is. Quote, 
My fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, unquote. If you have a guess for who said it, DM us on Instagram at Weekly Political Pep Talks. That's it for now. Leo, sign us off. Happy listening and stay political. For more exclusive content, visit weeklypoliticalpeptalks.com. Australian Grammar Magic School Bus.